Science Manny publication, most recent of which is the Annals of Don McNoise, and uh, he's going to talk about the uh, scribe history and contents of the Laubach. Good Liam. Well, before, before I begin, I should mention I have a handout here, and I please don't let it scare you, because uh, I prepared the handout first and then wrote the, the lecture, and I realised when I the lecture nearly finished that uh, I wouldn't be able to squeeze in uh, even a fraction of what's in this. So um, this is kind of the hope for <laughs> uh, uh, item, and um, maybe when it comes to publication, I'll be able to use some of the stuff in that. <coughs> also, my, my, some of you, in case you're falling, nodding off to sleep, maybe you can start reading that and you'll be sure to go to sleep. <laughs> now, okay, the manuscript now known as the Lower Black Spectral Book is among the most significant of our great Irish manuscripts. It would, be almost it would almost certainly feature among the top half dozen of the great vellum manuscripts from the late medieval, the medieval and late medieval period held here in the collection of the Royal Irish Academy. The others being, say, Leverna Hidra, of course, uh, the books of Ballymote, Lekin and Iwana, and the Liber Flavus for Gossiorum. We could easily raise this collection to more than a dozen by including, for example, the Book of Fermoy, the Book of Ballycommon, uh, uh, the Annals of Connacht, and perhaps the three autographed volumes of the Annals of the Four Masters. The thought occurs to me that there are enough manuscripts in this collection to ensure that the present uh, series of the present conference will continue for another couple of decades. And I can picture in my mind's eye a whole shelf full of volumes like the one launched last night here on display in the reading room uh, in about half a century's time. Not that I expect to be here to see it. Now, as it stands, the Laudrach comprises 142 vellum folios, 140 numbered consecutively, with two others uh, inserted between folios 238 and 239, and numbered 20, uh, 238A to 238D. On close examination, we find there are eight chasms or uh, gaps in the foliation between pages uh, 6 and 7, 186 and 87, 199, 200, 204, 205, 210, 211 and 211, 238 and 238A, 238 238D and 239, 260 and 261. This would suggest that the volume must at one time have contained at the very least 150 folios or 300, 300 pages and possibly rather more. And the old back, of course, was not the manuscript's original name. That only came to be applied to it in the 18th century, and therefore the Middle Irish version, Lever Black, uh, that is sometimes used, is, I suppose, slightly absurd, or as a great authority on the book, the late Professor Thomas Concanon remarked in a more conciliatory tone, the form has only a very recent history. The priest author, Shahun uh, Cachin, early in the 17th century, makes mention of a certain Lear Black Vic Egoin, uh, but this work is no longer extant. It certainly isn't the work in question here. One manus uh, our manuscript once bore the name Leor Moor Vicairgoin Dunadaire, the great book of Macairgoin of Dunairi, um, from the townland and parish in East Galway, whose anglicised form, as I say, is Dunairi, where it was held for a time in the 16th and early 17th centuries. This, however, may not have been the manuscript's original name. One thing that is immediately apparent about the manuscript is that it is, almost in its, in its entirety, the work of a single individual. As, described, as to the scribe's identity, the 19th century scholar Eugene O'Curry suggested in his great unpublished catalogue of the manuscripts then in the academy, um, 
that, quote, the scribe or scribe compiler was, according to tradition, a member of the Machiagoin family, uh, end of quote. And this belief is repeated in his book, Manuscript Materials of Early Irish History, published in 1861, where he declares that the book appeared to be written by some member of that learned family about the close of the 14th century. This view was also shared about a century later by Kathleen Mulcrone in her account of the manuscript in the RIA Catalogue of Irish Manuscripts, although she notes the occurrence of the words Mishus Sullivan on page 109, but leaves it without further comment. Prior to this, however, the, uh, the scholar James Kenny, in his Monumental Sources for the Early History of Ireland Ecclesiastical, uh, published in 1929, and sometime later James Carney in a chapter in the New History of Ireland, Volume 2, both went a step further and suggested the scribe was probably Sullivan MacGeoghan. Um, Carney incidentally refers to Anyar Black as one of our best preserved manuscripts from this period. Cathy Mulcrone, as uh, you probably heard yesterday from Ru in Rue's lecture, produced an expanded edition of Cochrane Callig, uh, issued in 1971 by the Institute for Advanced Studies. In the introduction to this, uh, Mulcrone, as it were, jumped on the pro Solov bandwagon. Indeed, she went a little further by filling out the genealogy of Solov, Maxir Drachi, Chwich, Vic Wilisagin, Vic Hirvrachi, Vic Yermada, Vic Ergoin, who she declared made this book before 1417. In support, she cites an article, Ginnali Quinne Ergoin, AD, Mili Kerikied, Mili Kuikied, which appeared in Master Vihili Clary in 1944, although neglecting to mention that she herself was the author of the article. The most significant contribution to the identification of the scribe was made by Tomaso Concanon, who in 1973 published a groundbreaking article, The Scribe of the Liar Brack, in the journal Eru, volume 24. Having recognised the hand from his study of the manuscripts of Gileisa Makhvirvishi, uh, on which he was to publish numerous valuable articles over the next 30 years, he was able to declare with confidence that on Liar Brack, apart from some minor additions, was penned by just one man. The man in question he identified as Murho Riwaho Quinlish, who had played a part in the late 1390s in helping to write the Great Book of Lekin under the direction of Gili Issa Makhvirvishi. Uh, Tomás was thus able to describe the Lourdrach as, quote, the largest Irish vellum manuscript penned by a single scribe. The patrons of the manuscripts compiler are nowhere mentioned, but there are references in two colophons to a certain Donal whom O'Concannon thought may have belonged to the family of MacEagoin, perhaps the very same Donal MacEagoin in whose house in County Tipperary, in the townland of Caparatan, uh, part of the ba Book of Ballymote was written up to two decades before the Lower Brack. Um, as for the family of O'Quinlish, the Annals of Connacht in 1342 tell us that one Donal O'Quinlish described as three Shanchasa, an eminent historian, was killed by the Eyrmada. The latter were a family grouping in East Galway whose name is now usually anglicised Dermody, and their chieftain, incidentally, was named O'Quinlish. Frustratingly, the Annals give no indication of the circumstances in which O'Quinlish was slain. A hundred years later, another man of the same surname, Crochur O'Quinlish, was Bishop of Emily from 1444 to 48, before being transferred to Clonfert. He resigned the episcopacy in 1463 and died six years later. 
We don't know what relation either of these was to Murrach or Rewach, but as the name was quite a, a rare one and confined to a small area of East Connacht, it's highly likely that these men were related, however distantly. <coughs> Thomas O'Connor also noted the ascription to one Flan O'Quinlish of a religious poem preserved in what he terms the MacEgan part of TCD manuscript H318, but nothing more is known of this individual. Indeed, in the first version of the uh, catalogue of um, Trinity College manuscripts, the, his name is totally mangled. It's not at all, uh, it doesn't even appear as a, as a personal name. <coughs> Morhoriuk's great manuscript has very helpfully left us some intriguing information about the family's home area. O'Concannon calls attention to what he calls a memorandum of great interest for its form and content that someone other than Morocco penned in the lower margin of page 258 of the Lower Black. This gives us details of the extent and boundaries of the land held uh, by the O'Quinlish family in a small district lying west of the River Suk. Centred on what is referred to as Farnagus Quidge i Quinlish the Wallet Lochajakar, the land and holding of O'Quinlish of Baladakar, uh, there is mention of ten other place names Klein Kalurha Rioja, Klein Quachamoda, Gurthan Thurnora, Lahachi Quinlish, Inish Faranon, Gurthi Quinlish, Balachi Quinlish, Klein and Gurchin Gir, Kor Wachala, and Clun Cannon. Now, all but three of those eleven names now appear to be extinct. At least they don't appear on any map. <coughs> the three survivors are Balach Dakar, now locally uh, pronounced Bally Dakar, um, and Korabachla and Clun Cannon. Situated consecutively running north to south, about midway between the small towns or villages of Craigs and Ballygar in East Galway, they lie close to the Roscommon border beside the River Suck, and just west of the town of Vatleague in South Roscommon. One of the eleven named features in Ishfaranon is said to be on the lake, that is, the small lake called Ballydacher Lake or Ballydacher Loch, and it's likely that Inishfarnon is now represented by an island called Stony Island. There's another smaller island called Sally Island, but that's unlikely to be the place, although possible. <coughs> As I've noted, the family of O'Quinlish received mention in the annals and other records from the 14th and 15th centuries. Likewise with Baldacker, it, it too features, albeit just once, in the annalistic record. According to the annals of Connacht of the year 1356, A son of Thurlachokrahur, king of Connacht, was killed in Balilochajakar by Donachokarachokali, and Clon and Warj, that's the Iwana family of Makawarj. This was done at the bidding of the Iwana, and in revenge for his having abducted and eloped with Shonin Burke's daughter, O'Cali's wife. Now, turning to Morohariwuch, when we first meet him, he was apparently serving as an apprentice to the noted scholar already mentioned, Gilly Samor Makirvishi at Lacken, or Lecken, in West Sligo, just north of Innescrone in or about the year 1397. In a note in the Great Book of Lekin, Moraha refers to Gila Isa as his own teacher and another as his dear teacher, Edge Gilish. Sometime towards the end of 1397 or early in 1398, Moraha Rewach departed from Lekin, and later in 1398 we find him at work penning what O'Concannon terms an excellent manuscript in East Ormond, that is somewhere in northeast Tipperary. That excellent manuscript would later become a component of a great collection of no fewer than 17 separate manuscripts, which came to be known, rather misleadingly, as the Yellow Book of Lekin. Uh, 
We know that Murhariwach also penned a manuscript called On Yaurumuinach, a religious compilation which in the early 17th century was preserved in a Franciscan house at Quinn, County Clare. There it was consulted in 1629 by Michal O'Cleary, who transcribed from it a number of texts. Unfortunately, however, the manuscript itself was later lost. And so we come to Murhariwach's greatest work, the Lyordak, to give it its current name. From dates uh, cited in the manuscripts, numerous marginalia in the hand of O'Quinlish, Tomás Concanon has deduced that the work was largely compiled between December 1408 and November 1411, and that the writing appears to have been done at various places on both sides of the Shannon, in East and South Galway, East and West uh, Offaly, and in parts of Tipperary. Eight place names in particular are mentioned in relation to the work of compilation, but only three of these can be pinpointed with complete accuracy. Uh, they are Clonsast in the barony of Coolstown in southeast Offaly, Clonmacnoise in the west of the same county, Lochray in the middle of County Galway or South Galway. <coughs> of the remaining five place names, three are ancient territories, Moy U Warga, which is deemed to have approximated to the barony of Valley Brit in southwest Offaly. Eilithushkirch on the borders of uh, Tipperary and Offaly, and Musclichira in the North Tipperary Baronies of Lower and Upper Ormond. That leaves uh, Clunyahan, which is considered to have been located in and around the neighbouring townlands of Redwood or Kulsharua and Ballymacegan in North Tipperary, and Ballyarikin, which is said to have been located in the vicinity of Brosna, uh, a few miles north of uh, Roscray on the, the little Brosna River. <coughs> Regrettably, Mordechai gives no indication of the sources he drew on when compiling on Yardrak, although this, in this he was no different to the compilers of most of the great manuscripts of the period and for several centuries afterwards. Uh, I found it myself uh, tantalising and sometimes frustrating indeed with uh, Makirvishi's book of genealogies that he doesn't give a hint uh, of the sources he used. Among the first scribes to drastically change this practice was Brother Michal O'Clady, who, on strict orders from his uh, superiors in Louvain, uh, made meticulous notes which enabled us to follow his travels around the country in the 1620s and 30s. Thus, in relation to a manuscript I mentioned a while ago, there is a note of his that reads in translation uh, from the book written by Murho O'Quinlish, that is, the Red Book of Munster. Contents of this choir were uh, copied June the 30th, 1634, in the convent of the Brethren at Quinica in Thomond, that is the Franciscan Friary of Quinn, County Clare. One might be tempted to surmise that Murahuriwa's great book may have been compiled for the noted legal family of MacEagoin, which was well established in the general Midland area from which O'Quinlish hailed, notably at Dunairy in southeast Galway and on the opposite, on the opposite side of the Shannon at Ballymacegan in North Tipperary. And as I mentioned earlier, a member of the family, Donald, had some involvement in the compiling of another of the great manuscripts of the period, the Book of Ballymote. Uh, as you possibly know, sometime in the 1390s, part of that manuscript was written in Donald MacEagan's house, situated apparently at Caparatton in County Tipperary, some miles north of Tipperary town. We should note, however, that the contents of Murahariwa's book differ quite markedly from those of the Book of Ballymote or of other manuscripts associated with the MacEagans. Instead of the legal or historical or genealogical material one might expect to find in such a book, the contents of Onyardrak uh, consist mainly of religious or uh, ecclesiastical material, saints' lives, sermons, martyrology, and so on. 
In the, light of, in the light of these contents, one would imagine that the great book was more likely to have been compiled for a cleric or an ecclesiastical community. But there seems to be no proof of this, nor any clear indication of the identity of a likely cleric or church. And here I may be proved wrong. Somebody might come up with a suggestion in a, uh, a later lecture. Uh, I do uh, harbour hopes that somebody sometime will have a, f a flash of inspiration as to the circumstances in which the book was compiled, or better still, discover some hard evidence on the matter. So one always lives in hope. Um, there are various aspects of the history of the manuscript that remain obscure. Most notably, we don't know what exact, when it exactly it came into the hands of the MacEgans of Donairy. As noted by Thomas Concanon, the earliest entry that links the manuscript to that important MacEgan seat is on page 189, where a certain Gilaporic Macrohor, perhaps a MacEgan, writes a lengthy and now partly illegible note lamenting the death of Ulick, son of Richard Burke, first Earl of Tanrickard. We know that the Earl's death occurred in 1544, and the note concludes, that is, I'm a Donairy waiting to go to Conbo. I'm not sure of the identity of that last name. Perhaps it's the townland of Canbo in North Roscommon, near Carrick and Shannon. That's only a, a, a guess. Um, <coughs> while this is the first explicit linkage of the manuscript uh, to Donairy, we cannot know if it had come there recently. Indeed, it could well have been there from around the time it was penned over a century earlier. We also know that when Michal O'Clery travelled to Donairy to consult it in 1629, he found that it was no longer there, but had moved about two miles south to the friary of Kilnalahan in the village now known as Abbey. Uh, we must concede then that there are many aspects of the story of our manuscript that remain obscure. Likewise, with the man who compiled and wrote it, it is remarkable, perhaps on the other hand it's not that remarkable, that we know so little about Morohoriwoho Quinlish, neither the date of his birth or his death or any aspects of his private life. But we do have the fruits of his labours, most notably here in the Academy in the form of Onyard Black, and before that in his contributions to the Great Book of Lekin and, of course, uh, other material in the so-called Yellow Book of Lekin in Trinity College. Um, now, I propose now to look briefly through the contents of the book. This is where I thought I would go through the, what you have in the handout, and I realised that I'd be here until late this evening if I started that. So uh, I'll just uh, uh, alight on a few points here and there. Um, I've come, uh, the, the handout you see, it's, it's really largely based on Cathy Mulcone's table in our RIA catalogue. And this I've divided for ease of reference into 104 numbered sections. I have also introduced a number of other changes, beginning with the page numbers. You'll see that uh, in the Academy catalogue you get a, a page referred to, say, as 4AM. That doesn't mean early in the morning. It's four, uh, page 4, uh, column A, and M means that it was in the middle of the column midway down uh, the column. But in my tab table, I have replaced these with uh, things like 4A38 to 6B59. So in other words, it gives you the precise line, uh, in, provided my counting was correct, um, indicating the line number at which each item begins and ends. This, as you may guess, involves going through the manuscript and laboriously counting the lines on each page. Uh, at least on all those pages on which an article began or finished. This, I will readily admit, was rather tiring and time-consuming, but in the end quite uh, interesting and even satisfying, as it gave me quite a good overview of the entire work. 
And here I must acknowledge that I would have been unable to do it without the assistance of the wonderful ISOS, Irish Script and Screen Service, courtesy of the School of Celtic Studies. Uh, as I didn't have ready access to the facsimile issued a century and a half ago, based on the transcript painstakingly executed by Shostakovich, and with a preface by Samuel Be uh, Samuel uh, Samuel Beckett, I was about to say Samuel Ferguson. Um, a second refinement was to uh, insert references to editions of or commentaries on each segment, which, when such existed. I confess, though, uh, that my references are far from exhaustive. All editions and corrections will be gratefully accepted. Uh, thus, while I followed the pattern set by the RIA catalogue of uh, then while I followed the pattern set by the RIA catalogue of quoting part of the opening lines of a chapter or segment, I decided to extend this somewhat, especially when, as frequently occurs in the manuscript, the opening lines may be given bilingually, first in Latin and then in Irish, or vice versa. It is interesting that among the most frequently cited editions or commentaries in my handout are one of the oldest and one of the most recent and uh, another that lies in between. These are, first of all, uh, Robert Atkinson's useful but in many ways unsatisfactory work of nearly uh, uh, 960 pages, The Passions and the Homilies from the Lower Black, which was published by the Academy in the Todd Lecture series in 1887. At the other end of the line, is Donahoe Coran's encyclopedic survey of medieval Irish books and texts from circa 400 to circa 1600, uh, entitled Clavus Literarum Hibernensium, Key to Irish Letters, running to just under 2,100 pages and published by Brethals in Belgium in three elegant volumes in 2017. The word elegant comes from Donahoe himself, that was still what he, when I asked him about it, he said, what's the first word that comes to mind? So he said he wasn't responsible for the design. Uh, it's a wonderful work, all right. Uh, in between is a small, but in the present context, very useful work by Father Martin McNamara entitled The Apocrypha in the Irish Church. With about 170 pages, it was published by the Institute for Advanced Studies in 1984. Um, incidentally, on the handout, if, you want, if you're interested in, in numbering things, I, I find that I cited uh, there uh, Atkins, uh, Atkinson's work 37 times, or Coran's 45, and McNamara's a respectable 26 times, seeing as it's such a small book in comparison with the others. On the question of the proportion of Irish to Latin in the work, a quick estimate of the situation in the quasi-biblical text published by Atkinson in his Passions and Homilies suggests that in his edition there are something over 8,000 lines of Irish compared to about 850 lines of Latin, but uh, that may need uh, adjusting. Um, and, of course, this proportion will vary in other parts of the manuscript. The text of Cochrane Callig, for example, is wholly in Irish, as is a collection of Irish saints' genealogies. Nevertheless, in a manuscript of that period, one may conclude that the proportion of Latin material it contained is quite high. No doubt the way Atkinson handled that material left a lot to be desired, although as something of a pioneer in the field, perhaps he didn't merit quite merit the savaging he received from the always irascible uh, Whitley Stokes. At the same time, anyone who has had to wrestle with the eccentricities of passions and homilies will surely cast a vote firmly in favour of what Liam Branagh will be speaking about after lunch, the case for a diplomatic edition of the Lord Black. I say here, here. Um, when dealing with the 120 numbered segments into which I've divided the contents of the hour back, the 100, 103 plus 17, you'll see the reason for that, I will begin by looking very briefly at some of the smaller items. There are no fewer than 93 brief segments that run from less 
than half a page to maybe two and a half pages of the manuscript. Uh, 19 from 3 to 7 pages each, and 6 from 8 to 32 pages each. Um, 20 of the items are poems, 14 of which uh, are quite short, and uh, five others rather longer, running from uh, uh, 23 uh, to 135 quatrains each. Some of the poems are quite well known. For example, two early poems, the so-called Hymn of Secondinus, Audite Omnes uh, Amantes, related to St. Patrick, and the poem to Colin Kille, Altus Prosator, which uh, occurs in the manuscript as Altus Prosator, uh, both in Latin, and Dolan Fergal's famous Avra Colin Kille, the a superb edition of which by Jacopo Bissani was published a couple of years ago by the Institute for Advanced Studies. Other poems I might mention include Is Meveldum Emrodad, uh, which Gerard Murphy published in his early Irish lyrics under the heading On the, Flighting, on the Flightiness of Thought. And as I think this was the first uh, early Irish poem that Podico Finus introduced us to in Minutes over half a century ago. Uh, he was particularly interested, I think he was hinting at something, but. Uh, and another one which uh, students may recognise is the delightful Cuffoch, Lavros and Lunza, which Eleanor not included in her book, Irish Syllabic Poetry. Um, Conor McDonough uh, uh, yesterday spoke to you about the sermons in the Dior Black, and I won't have much to say here about the material um, Atkinson published in his, uh, his Passions and Homilies, except to comment that it has frequently been remarked that the Irish never got around to translating the Bible into the vernacular until the, sec the first half of the 17th century, and this indeed may be true, but the Passions and Homilies, including some pieces that Atkinson, for reasons best known to himself, omitted from the edition, plus the substantial body of material the Academy catalogue includes under the heading Biblical Tract, shows that a substantial body of work was already in existence two centuries prior to the work of William O'Donnell and William Beadle in translating the Bible. Admittedly, this work did not amount to a proper translation, but rather to a conglomeration of biblical and apocryphal material. Without trying to labour the point, I, I fail to see the reason why Atkinson so drastically rearranged some of the material in Passions and Homilies. Why one must wonder, uh, did he not give the material in the order in which it occurs in the manuscript? And that is not to forget the liberties he took with the actual text, especially his eccentric handling of Latin passages scattered throughout the Irish text. It must be conceded, however, there's an ingrained eccentricity in the text itself, with Irish phrases and even whole sentences being followed by virtually Latin phrases or sentences, or sometimes the other way around. It prompts one to question whether the, te the text was perhaps designed to be read in, say, a monastic refectory, and if so, how was the bilingual to be handled? Was it to be left to the presumed monastic reader to decide what was the level of competence of the audience in one or other of the two languages? And then he would do, uh, read one or other or both uh, versions. Items that demand some mention in the time remaining are the five bulkier pieces, uh, the last of which is the, or the largest of which is the work that has been dubbed the Biblical Tract, which occupies nearly 50 pages of the manuscript. Uh, that's more than one-sixth of the entire book. About half of it is devoted to the Old Testament, a lot of it being a prose version of the celebrated Middle Irish poem, Psalter Naran, uh, uh, albeit with whole sections of the Psalter omitted and sometimes replaced with other biblical extracts. And here I refer to Miles Dillon's uh, very useful article in uh, Celtica, Volume 4, on, on this subject. Uh, the other half of the tract is devoted to items from the New Testament with, with a good deal of apocryphal material intermixed. 
The text is divided into 15 subsections, all but the last of which are quite brief. The last, Diegel Fall of Christ, The Avenging of Christ's Blood, runs to about seven pages, and its likely sources have been discussed by Robin Flower in his catalogue of Irish manuscripts in the British Museum. The next work in terms of length is Fela Angus Cayley J, generally translated as the Martyrology of Angus de Culdy, which runs to some 32 pages of the, of the manuscript. That amazing scholar, even with his cranky, Whitley Stokes, produced an edition of the failure in 1880 based on Lord Black and three other manuscripts. And in 1905, he, uh, he issued an expanded version with six, uh, from using six additional manuscripts. As you already have had a lecture on this text this morning, and my time is running out, I'll, you'll pardon me if I skip on to the next item. And doing likewise uh, with another well-known text in an hour back, the wonderfully satirical uh, Ashley McCondina, I confine myself to noting that none, of, none other than Atkinson refers to it as a wonderful Rabelaisian story in the introduction to the, um, uh, to his, uh, to the Passions and Homilies. This, however, is the same man who notoriously declared that all folklore is at bottom abomination, and I would not allow any daughter of mine to study it. <laughs> he was also the butt of a, fam of a famous popular uh, couplet, Atkinson of TCD doesn't know the verb to be, but I won't go into that now. Next, I'll mention a work that runs to just under, just under half the length of the failure, that is about 15 pages. This is a collection of the legends of the finding of the true cross, which deals with a subject, a veritable detective story, that exerted a considerable fascination for people throughout Christendom in the Middle Ages. Finally, there are two works that each run to 10 or 11 manuscript pages, respectively. Um, uh, taking them in reverse order, we find Sonus Cormac, Cormac's glossary, situated at the end of the manuscript, uh, attributed to the Munster King Bishop Cormac MacCullinan, who fell in the Battle of Ballachmona in 908. The work belongs to a genre that was popular in medieval Ireland. Such works comprise, in, to quote one authority, lists of words in alphabetical order elucidated by a combination of explanatory glosses, etymological analysis, and quotation. Sonus Cormac has been uh, described as the most compendious example of such a work, and inevitably attracted the attention of that most prolific editor of Irish glossaries, none other than our friend Whitley Stokes, who included it in his three Irish glossaries published in 1868. His edition of Cormac's glossary, however, was based on a text translated and annotated by John O'Donovan, who had died six years previously. The second of the works just referred to is the genealogical tract on Irish saints, which is located close to the beginning of the manuscript. I was able, thanks to Padraig O'Rean's meticulous corpus genealogiarum Hibern Sanctorum Hiberniae, uh, published in 1985, to analyse the Lower recension, and by ploughing through all 444 of its genealogical units, compare it with the closely cognate versions in the books of Ballymote and Lekin, and illustrate how it and they diverged from the L, that's the Book of Leinster version, which O'Rean used as the basis for most of his edition. Without going into too much detail, I can say that my findings largely supported Padraig O'Rean's conclusion that, quote, uh, LB, that's Lord Black, reveals evidence of a scribe who is prepared to correct and even depart from his sources. Those entries are frequently rearranged, particularly in the early part of the work. But, uh, as O'Rean uh, remarks, the grounds for this kind of disarrangement are not always apparent. And regrettably, I found nothing to disprove his reference to the mixture of carelessness and ignorance which characterises the common source of the three manuscripts. So um, 
when particle raining gives a, 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 a severe uh, chastisement like that, it's uh, obviously in, merited. Um, to conclude then, our next uh, lecture uh, will deal with the later history of the Lower Black, and I don't wish to encroach on, on the territory of the, uh, our speakers are here in front of me. Um, I cannot resist, however, mentioning that sometime, uh, uh, something from the mid-17th century uh, in which I have a certain interest myself. This has to do with an item in the Book of Genealogies compiled by a certain Dwaltach Machir Vichy from uh, West Sligo. Although most of the work on that uh, book was done in, count in Galway City between 1645 and the end of 1650, the compiler continued to add to it over the following decade and a half. One of those editions was a collection of saints' genealogies penned in 1653, and when working on my edition of the Book of Genealogies about 35 years ago, I recognised that this material was indisputably taken from on Yawr Brach. Uh, indeed, that material, penned in a distinctive ink, illustrates well just how accurate Dualtok was as a transcriber. It also enables us to hazard a guess as to where Machia Rishi may have obtained uh, access to the great manuscript of Morakuriwa Hoquinlish, most probably, I would say, in the Friary of Kilnalahan, although, again, typically he doesn't say where he got it, but uh, uh, that's the most likely uh, place, um, as I mentioned earlier. And I think on that note, I'll finish. Gormil Mahogin.